This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan. The Malaysian economy is one that relies on the sweat and toil of migrant workers. Yet every so often, there will be news about migrant workers who are exploited, underpaid, overworked, passports confiscated, bullied and placed in horrible living conditions. But we don't hear about employers getting arrested. Instead, what always ends up happening is the migrant workers themselves, who are already living in poverty and fear, get rounded up, placed in detention centres and even deported. So why does this happen? Joining me on today's show to discuss this is Charles Santiago. He's the co-chair of the APHR, which is the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights. He's also the former MP for Klang. Welcome to the show, YB. Hi, hi, Dashan. It is estimated that there are around 1.8 to 4 million migrant workers in the country. Why do migrants come to Malaysia to look for jobs? The formal statistics shows that as of now, there are about 2 million hmm migrant workers employed in this country. Right. And then there's also the undocumented workers mm-hmm. uh, that, are, that are in the country. And some numbers show it's 1 million, some, num- some people say it's 2 million. I mean, there's no way to figure out what the number is. But I think it's fair to say it's a huge number mm-hmm. uh, that we have here. So you have a sizable migrant population uh, in this country. And the bulk of the population comes from Bangladesh, uh, Nepal, and Indonesia. Uh, about 77% of the people of, uh, uh, let me say, documented migrants come from these three countries, Indonesia, Bangladesh, and uh, Nepal. But I'm I'm not so sure about the undocumented, though. I would think the undocumented also would be Bangladesh as well as Indonesia. Now, why do they come to Malaysia? Uh, There is this uh, big hope uh, in Bangladesh, for example, that uh, Kuala Lumpur is paved with gold. And people come here thinking that their lives can change uh, when they go when they go back to Bangladesh. Uh, they come here to work, uh, they come here to earn a living, and they also come here to uh, solve poverty issues in their own country. So they think that employment in Malaysia will give them that opportunity for upward mobility, uh, also to save some money and build homes in their own country and build their families in their own country. That is the hope. Uh, and clearly, that is not the case when they arrive here. Let's take this step by step. Um, to try and gain perspective on what actually goes down throughout the process. So I've read a number of accounts where experts say the problem usually begins right at the recruitment stage um, when people are still in their home country. So, for example, Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, whatever it may be. What happens in their home countries? Let me speak about what happens in at least in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the other countries have similar patterns as well. It begins at the at the most basic level, which is your village, mm-hmm. your village level, and then you have a district level, and then state, and then you're the federal level. Now, the recruitment of migrant workers uh, appears to be some kind of a multi-level marketing uh, that seems to be going on. So the local recruiter from the village will go looking out looking for people, and they will be working for these big companies or attached to big companies or getting uh, disc- uh, getting some kind of a uh, financial uh, remuneration from these big companies on the number of workers that they recruit. Uh, so these guys goes, go sometimes house to house 
And sometimes workers themselves come to them and say, I want to go to Malaysia to work. Mm. And that is how they recruited. And then finally, they go to the uh, federal level uh, where they will get, they will make, they will make a payment. They are paying anywhere between 25 to 30,000 Malaysian ringgit. Mm. If, they are, if they are poor, how are they raising this money though? Uh, one, they are sometimes selling their land. Uh, some, number two, they are renting their land to others. Uh, they are selling their cows. Uh, they are selling their goats. And also some of them sell jewelries uh, and so on and so forth. And a lot of them actually borrow money from the local banks. So, so that's why it's important when they come to work, when they come to Malaysia, it's really important that they start work right away. They start right away and not wait for you know one month, two months, three months before they get employed, because the the the, the interest payment kicks off uh, as soon as they arrive in Malaysia or the following month. So therefore, it's really important that they uh, actually are paid. I'm really glad you brought that up because sometimes there is an impression that these workers, you know, uh, can simply just hop on a flight and head to a country of their choosing to look for jobs. You know, I think what you mentioned is very important that they are often, they often come from impoverished backgrounds. They're selling their lands. They have to borrow money and they plunge very much into debt before they even arrive on Malaysian shores. Now, they arrive on Malaysian shores with the impression that this is going to change their lives, like you mentioned. What's the reality, YB? What happens once um, these migrant workers arrive in Malaysia? Uh, let me just share with you the recent uh, experiences mm-hmm. that were shared with me by some of the migrant workers who are now don't have a job uh, or displaced, if you want. They pay their 25000 ringgit. Uh, they go through the process. And then the day before they actually bought the plane, they are given this tax saying that they are going to work mostly in a construction company. So that's when they know. But actually, they don't sign up for a construction company, though. They right. sign up for everything else except construction because they know construction is a bit demanding. But anyway, since they, are, they have no choice, they take it and they come to Malaysia. Uh, and what's interesting, you know, see, they are paying twenty-five to 30,000 ringgit in, in, uh, uh, in the country. But the, uh, but the agents will tell them that when they go to customs, they have to say that they're only paying 80,000 uh, uh, the Bangladesh currency and no more than that. So which is what they say. And then they crossed uh, immigration. And once they crossed immigration, their passports are confiscated. They're taken away from them. Hmm. And in this particular case, where, which was told to me uh, in person, uh, they are then taken to a house where, where I think 40 of them were taken to this place. And these guys were really hungry. They, they boarded the night before. They had no food. There was no food on the plane. And then when they arrived, there was no food. And even when they actually landed in the, in the so-called apartment or the place where they were staying, there was also no food till the next day. So when they actually arrived there, 40 of them, they realized there were also another 40, 50 of them in the same place. Hmm. Uh, so that means this pattern has been going on for some time. And uh, they waited and they waited and they waited. The agent never turned up. Uh, and they were, you know, getting a bit jittery because, you know, they were they have to pay back the payments. They owe they owe money to the banks, to local money lenders, uh, you know, to to their families to renew their uh, or redeem their golds and jewelry and so on and so forth. You know, it's not much jewelry, whatever little jewelry they have, though. So so now they get jittery, and what they did was they took some videos and sent it all over the place, and one of them ended up in my Facebook, though. Uh, and that's what caught my attention, and uh, and that's when we started communicating with that. 
and they told us exactly what I just shared with you. Police were also part of the problem. And the guys who were already there, the 40, 50 guys who were already there, they actually had worked in uh, Johor, uh, but were not paid. And they were brought back to, to, uh, to the Damansara uh, uh, apartments. So I, uh, after hearing the story and uh, getting information about them, I, I spoke to JDK. And uh, JDK promptly went the next day. JDK was there. The agent was also there. And there was one group that was going to Penang. And technically, that group should not have been allowed to go. Because all of these guys uh, do not have, are technically undocumented already. Because if you are coming into Malaysia, your your work permit will actually mention a particular employer. Right. Uh, and that means you are working in a particular space, particular company. Mm -hmm. But these guys are not doing that anymore. Uh, and then these 40 guys were taken to uh, the holding center, JDK's holding center in Eli, where they were kept there for a week. But this time, food was provided. It was much better. And the same agent uh, arrived there and negotiated something. After that, they were all transferred to Kapong. This time, uh, they all were in, in the same apartment building. Ten of them in one room, 15 of them in another room, one room. It, it just it was absolute madness. Though. So when we were speaking to them, you can see the level of uh, depression that they were in. And for them, the thing is, uh, you know, I if I was the case, I would say I want to go back to my country. Though. Right. But for them, they've already borrowed the money. They have to pay back the money. And it's also a face thing, you know. Uh, I've come here to earn. Now I can't go back empty-handed. So a combination of things actually motivates them to stay back. Mm. And you could see that they were getting poor quality food. They were living in horrible uh, living conditions. They were not being paid. Uh, and uh, their food was actually very, very limited, very limited uh, I mean, not even for survival. It was quite bad, though. Uh, and they were being monitored by the, by, the, by the agents and so on. This seems to happen quite frequently. A couple of weeks ago, there was a group of uh, migrant workers who marched to the police station to make a police report that they were promised jobs, but upon arrival in Malaysia, weren't given the jobs that they were promised. How is this possible, YB, that despite paying the recruitment fee, like you said, it can go up to 30,000, 40,000 ringgit, and, and plunging into debt in the process, borrowing money and all of these things, that once they arrive in Malaysia, they do not have a job. How is this even possible? I think the best person to answer the question would be the minister. I, I can't answer the question because I see this is a flawed system. Right. A system that actually creates corruption and uh, abuse of power, it's against the law. Uh, you have to have an employer when you come into the country. And, and obviously, they have an employer, which is a construction company or some company or an or employment agency, but that agency does not have a booking space. What they're doing is they are sending workers to company one, company two, company three. And the, day, and the problem here is you cannot do that. We have outlawed outsourcing already in Malaysia. Outsourcing, outsourcing is, is no longer is not uh, legal anymore. But this this is what these guys are doing, and uh, and on top of that, these workers are no longer being paid. This is the other problem, and uh, they hold the passports. And in this case, I told you earlier, when the workers demanded for their passport, um, the management, uh, the agent said, "I will be happy to give you the passport, but it's three thousand, four thousand, and five thousand." And every other day, it goes up higher by 1,000 ringgit. Now, where would these guys go for 3,000, 4,000, or even 5,000 to get the passport? So they are held in captive. 
this is where the issue of slavery comes from. This is the issue of slave labor comes, where they're being held captive. And of course, it definitely violates uh, the protocols of forced labor. Uh, but we are now moving to a different territory called slave labor. Uh, one, they are not being paid and they are just being moved from one employer to another employer without being paid. This is this is a scary part. And then, uh, and sometimes workers make a pushback. They push back and then they will get 500 ringgit uh, and then they will get uh, 200 ringgit. Uh, but this is what they signed up. They signed up for a minimum wage plus whatever overtime that they do. That is where the, your permit says that's what you are. That's by law. But here, they're not even getting that. And I must impress upon you, uh, uh, Dashan, that this is not an isolated case. Mm -hmm. uh, at least I know of uh, uh, the issue of Pangarang that you're talking about is one among the many. Right. It's one among the many. I know at least of six or seven cases uh, that, is, that this is happening. And this, I'm, I'm just an individual. Though. Uh, if I'm familiar with six or seven cases, documented cases uh, that I know of, There'll be many, many other people, and not only they come from KLIA, they're also coming from via Singapore as well, into Johor Bahru. And I think the MP for Pangarang, the minister, uh, Azlina, uh, she herself said this is slave labor. Uh, and I think uh, I have been told that the prime minister uh, told, uh, has given a clear instructions to the minister of uh, home affairs as well as the minister of human resources that he wants this thing resolved once and for all. So I think yesterday's press conference was quite good, uh, where they actually had said that uh, they will take action against the employers, uh, the agents, and so on and so forth. But I think here is where we need transparency, though. Uh, we have heard government saying, yes, they will take you to court, they will do this, they will do that. But you know how a system works, right? And the massaging starts. So I think this is we need evidence of this. And it was actually very good that uh, when the Ministry of uh, uh, Human Resources lodged a complaint against the agent for the workers, which I thought was really very, very good. I, mean, I think we must commend the minister for that. Uh, this is unprecedented, never has been done. Uh, and I think the minister needs to be commended for that, that work. And I think the case is coming up on February 4th or 5th. Uh, and this is about pay, unpaid salary worth 2.2 million. So that's good. And also, I think, you know, we have this uh, forced labor uh, roadmap uh, that comes to end in 2025. But we are a long way uh, to settle the problem, to, to manage uh, forced labor in this country. Though. Now, my biggest concern, Nashwan, uh, uh, is this, you know, we uh, increasingly, behavior of these regions, uh, as well as employers who are employing these workers, is putting Malaysia in a very difficult position. Right. Uh, one, we already have this WRO experience uh, in the United States where we had Sandabi, FGV, uh, 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 Top Glove, and other companies. The, the, the imports were stopped into the country, the United States, uh, and that's because of forced labor issues. Now, the Europeans, too, have a similar effort, uh, but theirs is a bit more uh, retail, which means that they also include a supply chain, supply chain right. as well. And then, number three, uh, FTAs themselves are also put, putting pressure on governments not to use forced labor. Uh, so that's a third, third uh, if you want pressure on the government. And also the TIP report, the trafficking in persons report that the US comes out every year. Uh, we're not doing very well there as well. So therefore, uh, all of this puts pressure on the Malaysian economy. On one side, the Malaysian prime minister works hard. He goes all over the place wanting to bring new investments. But on the other side, internal dynamics, 
uh, works against his interest. And you do not want a situation where foreign countries target you or big suppliers target you and say, we do not work, want to work with your country because of forced labor. Right. And my view is uh, we, are, we are going in that direction. On the show with me today is Charles Santiago, co-chair of APHR, which is the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights. We will continue our conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dashran Johan, and on the show with me today is Charles Santiago, He's the co-chair of APHR, which is the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights. And we're discussing the plight of migrant workers in Malaysia. Now, this conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple, I would really appreciate it if you gave us a follow and drop us a review. It would be really helpful. So, YB, I was reading an article on The Atlantic in which Katrina Malayomov um, from Amnesty International Malaysia, she's a human rights activist, she said that most of the migrant labourers, the migrant workers that come, are actually documented. They're not, so to speak, climbing over fences, but a lot of them suddenly become undocumented when they lose their jobs or are randomly fired could you contextualize this particular problem? Because I think within the imagination and psyche of the Malaysian masses, they do have this false impression that these are people who are illegally climbing over fences, they are criminals, so on and so forth. They are doing shady things to come into the country, right? Yeah, uh, if you look at the history of uh, man migrant management in the country, uh, uh, it goes like this. One, initially, the employer will go to a, a, a source country and hire workers to come to Malaysia. Right. They found it a bit a uh, bit uh, uh, tough to do that. And then subsequently, they said there were agents that propped up all over the place and said, we will do the work for you. You just, uh, you know, just tell us how many workers you need and tell, tell us which country you need them from. We will get it for you. So then you now only had, first you had employers, then you had agents. The point was the agents that brought them sent them to the employers. Mm. So that means there was an employer. So the agents were just doing the processing from source country to receiving countries. So that was the uh, the work of a uh, agent at that time in, the, in different phases though. So the, when the worker comes in, he or she will go to company A to work, uh, company B or company C or company D, and there was an employer and therefore, they were all they were all working. Now, in that context, there are many ways a worker can become undocumented. Uh, when the exploitation becomes brutal, they will run away. So that worker who runs away automatically becomes undocumented because he can only work for company A and not for any other company. Uh, so uh, workers don't pay salaries to uh, uh, management these management companies. Uh, I mean, these uh, this workers, they also run away. And right. sometimes workers themselves are also influenced by their, their friends uh, from their own kampong, saying that they're getting a better salary here, so why don't you come here? Uh, so they also move, and that also makes them uh, undocumented. That was in initial, initial stages. But now you have a new phenomenon. Uh, this is something that has been happening in the last, I think, year, year and a half, 
uh, and the, I think last year things became quite hot heated up. And this is where workers are being brought to the country uh, through false means uh, for a job that does not exist. So the means the intent to cheat is already started. Mm. Uh, the means you are bringing workers without a job. So you, you, when you once you clearly you flaunt Malaysian laws quite clearly, and then uh, number two, uh, it raises the question about how did they get the permit to bring in these workers to without a job? Number two, and then I think there's a need to uh, look at the, the the approval process itself and the agencies that are actually providing the process itself. What is the level of relationship between officers who are approving it and the agents? We rarely hear about recruitment agents, agencies, or employers getting arrested. Why is this the case? This is the Malaysian problem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, go, we go after the victim and not the cause of the problem. Right. This is the Malaysian phenomenon. Uh, and that is why, you know, I'm sometimes very t- tempted to tweet, uh, especially when these raids are happening, and they ask the immigration the question, hey, you guys approve these guys, you know. Uh, to come into the country, uh, and they are in the country, and okay, some of them have become undocumented. But why are you not going after the guys who are bringing them here? Uh, why are you going after the victim? You know, what I think we are failing to understand, or immigration fails to understand, or does not want to understand is, these guys have to pay their debt back. These guys have to pay back their borrowings. And they are not small, 25 to 30,000 ringgit. Uh, I'm sure in Dhaka currency, in Bangladesh currency, is very high. So they have to pay back. So they have to find jobs. And because the situation here is corrupt, because the situation here has failed, and here the situation is uh, abusive, workers do all kinds of things to raise funds. So, uh, of course, if it's illegal, um, that's a different uh, illegal activity like drugs, uh, smuggling, all that is not acceptable, though. But the point is, these guys are working in shops. These guys are working, you know, in uh, in restaurants. These guys are working in, in places, uh, and they come out for a for a break, and then you you catch them. Even if they have the card, even if they have the permits to show them, they get picked up. Now, this is a question that I think the government has to answer. Immigration has to answer. What lies at the heart of this problem? You know, because we are talking about, you know, raids, deportations, arrests. Um, and but yet this problem has continued to persist. Um, the root causes are not addressed. The reality is this is an issue of forced labour, human trafficking, essentially modern-day slavery. Bringing in migrant workers from source countries is a lucrative business. Hmm. Highly lucrative business. People have become millionaires. People uh, who manage these things have got private jets and so on and so forth. So this is big money, very, very big money and a short time. So therefore, everybody who wants to, you know, quickly make some money, this is the business to go to now. And it also shows poor management and regulation and control on the part of government. A lot of it reeks of hypocrisy to me. A subsection of the Malaysian population is xenophobic. Every now and again, politicians will fan the flame of xenophobia and put on this big show of excessive force. We're talking about raids, mass arrests, um, so on and so forth, right? And and some Malaysians um, will clap their hands. And none of the employers and the recruitment agents, which are the root causes of this problem, get into trouble. And the next day, it's business as usual. What makes it worse 
when I think about the xenophobia and the theatrics by politicians on display, is that the Malaysian economy right now relies on cheap labour creating a surplus, right? Migrant workers who are exploited provide this cheap labour. None of us would have houses to live in or roads to drive on, malls to lepa in, if it weren't for migrant workers spilling their blood, sweat and tears and, and making these things. I think, one, uh, Malaysia uh, is addicted to cheap labour. Our companies, small and medium industries in particular, uh, and the middle-level companies and, uh, and big companies have not innovated sufficiently to compete uh, with other countries. Uh, other countries have actually moved up the technological ladder, uh, but we have not done that. We are still addicted to cheap labour, and therefore we are trying to take advantage uh, of cheap labour as a way to compete with com- countries that have better technology and better skills. So we are losing out in the technological area, we are losing out in the skills area, and, and that's because we have not done necessary investments in both of these areas. Though. Now, the government actually provides funds for SMEs and others, uh, uh, other companies, uh, to innovate. But that funds has not been taken up because people are still stuck with migrant labor. Because it is cheap, it's abusive, you can abuse it, it can work for 12 hours a day or even 14 hours a day. So therefore, why, 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 why change a system which has benefited you? And this is where the government has to come up very hard uh, and have a very clear policy on uh, the use of uh, uh, cheap, uh, cheap labor, uh, or migrant labor in this case. If we do not do that, other countries will leapfrog us, which is what's happening. Look at, look at where Vietnam is today. Look at where Vietnam is. You know, at one time, we competed with, uh, in the 60s and 70s, we competed with, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, 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 Korea. Right. right. But where is Korea today and where are we, where are we today? Uh, and then Singapore. I mean, Singapore too has migrant workers, but they're not addicted to cheap labor. Though. They're very focused on high, level, high skills, high level skills. They're very focused on new technology, development of new ideas, development of new processes, and so on and so forth. And they also bring in uh, uh, resources from the outside, technology from the outside, and mindsets from the outside, and, and new thinking from the outside in order to innovate the economy, innovate the way they do things. Uh, for example, stem cells, for example, uh, is one good example. So there are many things that we should be doing which have not, we have not done. And, and now we are bogged with this, uh, this, this addiction uh, to cheap labor and don't know what to do with it. In the case of plantations, I can understand why you still need uh, uh, labor. You need raw labor. You need human labor. And that's because sometimes not have, not that all the processes can be uh, automated, because sometimes trees are planted in hills. Uh, the automated, I think, will have difficulty getting up there. Though. But I think on the, in the urban sector, you Malaysians should be uh, given up better salaries, uh, and uh, and 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 better training, more skills to go and work. Today, you have lots of Filipino working in the hotel hotel sector. Why do you have Filipinos? Because one, the knowledge of English, and number two, you know, it's a service culture. Now, why are we saying that we don't have a service culture in Malaysia? Uh, but the point is, we are our our, our salaries are low compared to the rest. Uh, for others who come to work in Malaysia, when they when they do the exchange rate, it's better for them to work in Malaysia as opposed to the Philippines. Right, so it works for them. 
So Malaysian employers and the government of Malaysia must recognize that the existing salaries are not enough, not sufficient to for the worker and also to reproduce the family of the worker uh, to move on. So therefore, uh, I think this is a whole lot of thinking that the government has to do. Uh, but unfortunately, we are stuck uh, on, a, on, on the issues of cheap labor and unable to come out of this trap, if you want. Should we also, on that note, push to increase the minimum wage? The answer is uh, yes. And I think if you look at the, uh, the rate of 1,500, by now it should be 1,800. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because we have sometimes postponed the two years to three years and then we have given a number of leeways and so on and so forth. So if we go by the time we started uh, minimum wages now, it should be about 1,800 at this time. Mm-hmm. But we are only using 1,500. But at the same time, if you look at the studies, uh, uh, maybe a year and a half study uh, of uh, of uh, Bank Negara, uh, Kazana, uh, EPF, and so on and so forth, really puts the minimum wage uh, to shame. Because we are looking at 1,500. But they are saying basically for a family of three people in, in Kuala Lumpur, Johor, uh, Perak and Penang, where most of the workers are, uh, it should be a minimum of 2,700, 2,600 right. or 2,500. So we are way behind, though, way behind. Uh, and that is something I think that employees really have to start looking though. I think we need better uh, uh, distribution of wealth in this country. Uh, as I said earlier, no government should uh, aspire for to create uh, you know two billionaires and you know forty five different millionaires and millions of people who are poor, though. you really don't want that to happen. So you want a middle class, you want the country to move to a middle class range where everybody can have a dignity of life, uh, as well as you know quality of service, quality of life, and you know standard of living which is comparable to the rest of the world. I mean, Oxfam study yesterday is kind of a really upsetting. Because now we are looking at this new notion of trillionaires, though. No more billionaires, but trillionaires. Right. Uh, and one individual, you know, just earning mil- double-digit millions in one hour. You know, where's the worker you know, who earns only 1,000? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, so unequal. So, but we need a, a society where I think uh, we need more equality. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that the Madani government has got that, that uh, the Madani concept carries that notion of equality, uh, but it has to be put into practice though. Uh, and as everything in Malaysia, policies need to be improving and definitely implementation. So we've discussed um, a lot of problems um, within the system right now. In a nutshell, are we failing at a policy level or at an implementation level? Uh, I think uh, in terms of policy, I think ours is very uh, glossy, I must say. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's very well written. You know, you pay the consultant tons of money to write up some <laughs> nice words. Uh, I think the policies are there. I mean, the the twelve the twelve measure plan, the reviews there, the, the issues are there. Uh, we fail in terms of uh, implementation, and also we also fail in reimagining in imagining the future. Uh, and this is something that we really have to do. Uh, other countries have imagined, and they are moving forward. Uh, even in countries like Vietnam, where salaries were low at one one point, are now moving up. Salaries are moving up. So they don't see a need to cr- go to other countries. Indonesia is a good example. Before, lots of Indonesians were in Malaysia. But now, since the wages are increasing in Indonesia, so people are saying, okay, it's best I stay in Indonesia. So at the end of the day, it is about wages, real wages. 
So help us imagine, how do we move forward? What are the key things that we need to do to eradicate this problem of forced labour? What, what we need to be doing is to ensure that our employers follow the law and we regulate agents. So the government needs to regulate all agents who want to bring in workers from other countries. So my recommendation is each uh, uh, agency should put $1 million, million on the table as part of a deposit. And if you violate it, you will lose the $1 million. I think it's time to get a bit tough because the situation is bad and the situation is getting worse. So therefore, we really have to bail the cat here. And all uh, all of the people who are bringing in workers from the overseas must be registered with the government. They cannot just uh, open up an employment agency and then bring in workers, which is what is happening. Do we need to promote unionization among workers? Because as of right now, if you just look at Malaysian workers, I think only about 3 to 5% of our workforce is unionized, which is deplorable. And on top of that, um, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but migrant workers aren't allowed to form unions in, in Malaysia. Um, I, I'm wondering if promoting a, a more or becoming a more pro-union country, moving in that direction, could really help the situation because then workers can come together, they can demand for better benefits, better wages, um, dignified living conditions. Um, because right now, many of them are not empowered. They don't know what their rights are. Um, they get scammed, they get cheated, they are um, highly marginalised um, and, and they are stuck in this vicious cycle. The recent amendments to the Employment Act and the uh, uh, Trade Union Ordinance uh, is the is is a is one way forward, mm -hmm. uh, which will al allow for more unions to be formed uh, and to allow for more competitiveness within the trade union movement itself. Uh, right now, it, one would think that there's a lot of monopoly going on, uh, and we have very uh, you know veterans who are still running the show, uh, and I think it's time for a change in the baton. Uh, young younger unionists should be allowed to to take over the leadership of trade unions, and they should be sufficiently trained in order to do that. Uh, in the case of migrant workers, uh, they can join trade unions. Mm. There's nothing there to stop them from joining trade unions, but I think there's a question of still whether they can take leadership positions in trade unions. Though, but the point basically is yes, they can do that, and I, I'm in agreement with you that we need a, a more positive. Uh, perception of trade unions in the country. Uh, right now, when you mentioned the animal trade unions, it's always negative. Right. Uh, they are bad. They're always involved in strikes uh, and so on and so forth. But I think this has to be recast. This has to be rethought and redesigned uh, with the hope that the uh, trade unions can become equal partners in development. You know, we have uh, trade unions, we have employers, uh, we have government, all partners of development, stakeholders of development. Uh, but somehow, it's always the employers are seen as the critical partners of development, but not the, the workers. So it is time to include the workers as part and parcel of the country. End of the day, uh, you do not want to have a country where you have uh, five billionaires and, and 50 millionaires, uh, but thousands and thousands and thousands and millions of poor people. Though. Mm -hmm. You do not want that. And, and it's also in the interest of businessmen and employers that you have a high standard of living for your own workers. Uh, that speaks well for you. How much of this um, 
is a regional or international issue, how much can we solve just by um, focusing domestically and how much of regional cooperation is required? I think it's uh, all three, international, regional, as well as national. Though. Mm-hmm. By end of the day, uh, in, in politics as well as in economics, uh, the, this, the country itself is important. Uh, we need to protect the country from outside influence, over, overwhelming outside influence, while we acknowledge that price changes overseas can also impact on your country. But you need to have a buffer in this country. Though. Many years ago, there was a decision made by government that we need to industrialize. Uh, industrialized at the expense of agriculture. But today, that has come to bite us in a very big way, where agricultural prices have just gone through the roof. So that is where we need to rethink or reimagine the way we uh, organize the economy. Uh, And I think priority should be given to agriculture. Uh, When I say agriculture, I'm not just talking about cash crops. I'm talking about, you know, vegetables. I'm talking about poultry. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, beef. I'm talking about mutton. Uh, but vegetables that people consume on a day-to-day basis. This has to increase, productivity has to increase, and more money has to be, you know, go to people who are actually investing and producing these products. Uh, clearly, we can't depend on, uh, you know, other countries because very clearly in the case of India, India decided the national priority is important and they stopped exporting, say, onions and potatoes and so on and so forth, but which has a major impact on Malaysia. Though. Right. Uh, so in that in that way, we need to, uh, you know, step up uh, on local production and local self-sufficiency, if you want, or what they call uh, local sovereignty, mm-hmm. food sovereignty in this nation. So I think something that we have to look at. While we look at, you know, artificial intelligence is important, but artificial intelligence should be brought to the man and woman who's actually doing this agriculture, uh, who's working in agriculture to help them better plan and help them to better harvest uh, their product. It's nice to have these big openings and say, yes, everybody can do it now, but nothing like bringing it to the people uh, who actually can make it work. We have to look 10 years from now uh, as a way of looking at it. Chances are very high. Malaysian workers are going to be working in other countries in a very big way. Uh, Malaysian workers might work in Thailand, they might go to Japan to work, Korea to work, Indonesia to work, and elsewhere. And big numbers, though. Big numbers. So, and uh, they need protection wherever they go. So just like that, we too need to protect those workers uh, from other countries who come here to work uh, so that uh, our workers can be protected overseas. And this should be a regional phenomenon uh, where there is a need for a minimum standard across the board in all countries on how you treat uh, migrant workers, uh, whether they come from poor countries, less developing countries, or or, or a country like Malaysia, though. Uh, don't forget, we have about almost half a million people working in Singapore. Uh, we have lots of people working in Thailand. Mm-hmm. We have people working in Indonesia as well. So these numbers will increase. I mean, can you imagine now that this 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 mad rush to Australia that is happening right now? So you can see how Malaysians feel that they can earn money better outside than in Malaysia itself. You can see the early sparks, if you want, the early sparks of it. And this is a phenomenon that is going to grow. It is going to grow. And therefore, just like you protect Malaysian workers, and, and that's when you can push the other country to protect Malaysian workers when they are there. So this has to be made uh, not only a, a national practice, but a regional standard, and at some point, a regional and a global standard as well. YB, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure having uh, to talk to you. I really, really enjoyed it. 
That was Charles Santiago, co-chair of APHR, ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights. This conversation is also available on podcast. You can find us on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Just look up Beyond the Ballot Box. If you are listening to us on Spotify or Apple, do subscribe to us and drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Dashan Johan and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.